Aloha! I'm Michelle Rundgren. It's time for, yep, the second podcast. I've titled it Under the Influences because we're all going to talk about, well, the questions we asked last week. Who are your musical influences? What's your first memory? Uh, what are your first five records you bought? You don't have to say five, but I don't know. I just, I love learning about you and then I get to share my stories too. And I'm excited about this week, although it is in the daytime. And Veronica Moreno asked me a really tough question. So I decided not to answer it at nighttime when I might have had some wine. <laughs> but I'm going to, I'm going to, that's part of my plan is to answer everything really honestly. And if I can't do that, then I would just avoid the question. <laughs> so uh, thanks for joining me and sharing your stories. If you'd like to share some stories, uh, at the end of the show, I'll tell you what I think we should talk about next week. The questions I ask, you can wait weeks if you finally come up with something and like, oh, she asked that on the first show. Go ahead and ask it. You can phone in and we can hear your voice on the podcast. You can dial 808, that's area code for Hawaii, 431-4881 and record something. You have three minutes on there. Then uh, if you don't want me to hear your voice or you don't want your voice on the podcast, you can email me your answers or a story or questions. I'll answer questions. Um, but you guys had questions about Todd's book, but you didn't get specific. And I said, I want specific. Like on page 38, he said this. What did you, what was? Anyway, uh, that's at michellerengren at gmail.com. And Michelle is spelled M-I-C-H. E-L-E. For those of you who aren't Rundgren fans, it's R-U-N-D-G-R-E-N. Cool, let's get to it. I'm going to talk about my stuff, and then your stuff. So, my first concert and my first record. Hmm, okay, my mom didn't let me go to the first concert I was supposed to go to. My great aunt Eva bought tickets to see a show in the big city of Portland, Oregon. Auntie Eva was going to take me and my two older cousins, Peachy and Lindy, better known now as Cynthia and Melinda, but I still call them Peach and Lindy. Get stares in the grocery store if we're all together. Anyway, I was 10, and my mom said, no way, she's too young to go to a concert. Even when I told her that George Harrison was dating my Barbie, she still wouldn't let me go see the Beatles. By the way... Barbie was not monogamous. She was also dating Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. But George was way cuter. Nope. Oh, and by the way, no. When Todd did the tour with Mickey Dolenz, I did not tell Mickey that he dated my Barbie. Okay, my first concert was when I was 18. Now remember, I was a busy, booked-up girl with, you know, dance classes, singing classes, in shows all the time in my little town of Astoria, Oregon. And I didn't have time. So, Jesus took me to my first concert. Yeah, Jesus. Well, he played Jesus in a production of Jesus Christ Superstar that I was in. I was 18. He was 33. Yeah, that story is going to be in the next podcast about mothers. <laughs> Jesus took me to see The Who. 
playing at Tacoma Dome in uh, Tacoma, Washington. Now, I hadn't seen a big show like that. Uh, you know, the lights were amazing. The costumes were amazing. The music was freaking loud. The Tacoma Dome is super echoey. Uh, but I liked it. It just... Rock wasn't my scene. Yet. Although, when I answered the phone at home last year, and Pete Townsend was calling, uh, before I handed the phone over to Todd, I almost, almost told him that story about my first concert. Luckily, I held my tongue because the story wasn't poignant or funny, or maybe I just got starstruck. But it, you know, it was going through my mind. Remember how like you've heard people, maybe even you've done it before. I've I hear this all the time. Hey Todd, I saw you in 1975. Do you remember I saw I talked to you backstage for a minute and I was wearing a fur coat and a hat and and I am always thinking like, oh geez, I don't ever want to do that to somebody, but I almost did it to Pete Townsend. My first records. I think my parents bought all my kitty records until one Christmas, 1971. They gave me a really nice turntable, big speakers, and three albums. Now, they had really good taste in music, but this time, they asked the only record store in Astoria, Oregon. Um, I don't know if it's the owner or just the clerk that worked there, but they asked them to pick out three albums that a 15-year-old girl would like. And I will forever be grateful to the record store person. You helped shape my life. I wish I'd thought back then to thank them, but, you know, you don't always know you're being influenced by someone at the time. Good or bad. Okay, can you think of, like, some top records in 1971, Christmas time? They bought me Simon and Garfunkel, Bridge Over Troubled Waters, the original cast soundtrack of Jesus Christ Superstar. Yeah, that one was going to end up giving my parents future headaches. And Carol King's Tapestry. I know and probably still know all the lyrics to the last two albums. I can probably sing every single song. Three years later, I'd be in the show Dating Jesus. Yeah, story comes next podcast. <laughs> oh! And Jesus Christ Superstar also ties into that question I'm trying to avoid by Veronica Moreno. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Ooh, let's avoid that for just a few more minutes. <laughs> All right, we're going to get into some of your questions and also your answers about memories, about your first memory, your first concerts, your first records. And remember, you can answer those anytime, a month from now. Call me or email me and tell me. Okay, the first one comes from uh, Chris. Chris wrote that he saw Thomas Dolby at the Mid-Hudson Civic Center in Poughkeepsie. Seen Todd there a few times at the Chance next door. It was pretty amazing. Thomas's second album, The Flat Earth, had just come out, and I was in love with it. And I love this part that he writes, When a song gives me chills, you know it's special. Songs can rule my day. A sad song will keep me blue, and a happy one will get me out of that rut. <laughs> Some of his faves are because he can pick out parts to play on his guitar. Very cool. So, let's see. His songs that he liked. It's a Shame by The Spinners. Waiting for My Real Life to Begin by Colin Hay. I, I, know I, I haven't even heard that. I'm going to listen to it. 
and Stevie Wonder from 66 to 82. Good choices. <laughs> uh, oh, and he also has a question. He recorded it. Let's hear Chris Windsor's question. It's Chris from New Windsor, New York. Chris Sirio. My question is, uh, in the mid to late 80s, Hal Wilder made three tribute albums, one for Kurt Wheel, uh, one for Thelonious Monk, and there was a third called Stay Awake, uh, a bit of uh, Disney songs. I read somewhere that Todd was involved in that project, however, he's not on the album. Do you know what song he was going to do? Did he do that song? Is it somewhere in the archives? Very interested in that. Love the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Cool, Chris. Um, I forgot to mention, Chris, that you said you were also a big NRBQ fan, and it wants us all to know that if we've never heard RC Cola and a Moon Pie, we're really missing out. Okay, I'm going to listen to those after my show. So um, I stopped the program and went and asked Todd about Stay Awake, a Hal Wildner. Yeah, he lo Todd loved working with Hal. And as you heard on my last podcast, Hal gave me my favorite showbiz moment. We miss him all the time. Ah, it's pretty new. Uh, anyway, Hal did some amazing, weird, weird productions. Hal Wilner. Uh, Todd worked with him on Kurt Vile record and also Thelonious Monk. But when I asked him about Stay Awake, which Hal produced, Hal didn't ask him to sing on that one. Which freaks me out. I mean, he would have been beautiful singing uh, a Disney song. Especially the title cut. I don't know who sang that. I have to check it out. Stay awake. Oh, I love that song. Okay. Uh, oh, Ray Place has a, a few comments here. He's been uh, we keeping Ray and I keep in touch a lot. I have a great shot of Rebop and Chris Place. Um, Chris is McLovin. And if you don't remember who McLovin is, look him up. Chris is uh, single-handed. And Jed Apatow, right? The writers are single-handedly responsible for almost all of us in Hawaii when we go to the mainland for years and years. People look at our Hawaii licenses and go like, Whoa, it is real. Wow, that's, that's a real license? Like a home McLovin. <laughs> anyway, Ray says, My first memory and first musical moment are the same. I remember sitting in my high chair, probably about three years old in the kitchen, my mom is doing, he says mother, sorry, my mother was doing something at the counter or sink with the radio on. To this day, I remember the song distinctly as she worked, and whenever I hear it, I'm transported to that time. The song was Young at Heart by Frank Sinatra. Oh, great song. My first five records were, They're coming to take us away, ha ha, hee hee, ho ho. I just had to do that one. <laughs> Uh, titles, uh, title record, The Doors, The Doors, as well as Vanilla Fudge, Vanilla Fudge, and Steppenwolf, Steppenwolf. And his fifth record, In the Gata de Vida. I know you know the words, Iron Butterfly. His first concert was Jethro Tull in Munich, Germany, and Robin Trower opened. Uh, he says he was awesome, but Germans booed him off the stage. They only wanted to hear Tull. It was the Aqualung tour. Jeez. I mean, don't fans know that the 
opening, I mean, the main act is not going to come on early. So if you boo some music off the stage, uh, we wouldn't. None of us would. But if someone booed an act off the stage, then you just have to sit there and wait until the other showtime. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, number four. The first song that mattered to uh, Ray was I Want to Hold Your Hand by the Beatles. And that song started what he considered his music. The first record he bought was Meet the Beatles. And the Beatles changed my music life. Ray said his dad wrote arrangements for him on the flute. Oh, that's so cool. What a cool dad. And Ray's sister was 16 months older. Uh, got, to, got to also play stuff. Her name's Michelle. Oh, she played piano. She would like play Yesterday and other Beatles songs. All right, I mixed my questions up here. Um, oh, Ray's first concert. Oh, my God. These concerts that Ray got to see. Ugh. The Temptations, Four Tops, Stevie Wonder, The Supremes, and Dionne Warwick. Oh, my God. All were in the summer of an outside, at an outside venue named Carter Barron Theater in Washington, D.C. His mom and aunts took all the kids to the concerts. They were five bucks a ticket, oh, geez, and sat up front. They were amazing shows. He says, I did get to see Naz in 1969 in Philadelphia, so I've been a Todd fan for a long time. Todd and all of my Todd friends have been and will always be an important part of my life. Ah, that's so cool. <laughs> hey, Donna from Palm Desert. Aloha, Donna. She says, my homework for the week will be question one. My first memory. I was probably about a year old, not um, walking but not talking. My mother handed me a plastic bottle of orange juice. My little hands started to feel wet and sticky. I suspected the bottle and oh I inspected the bottle and saw a small small pinhole in the side. I solved my first problem. I think this jolted me into awareness. We definitely can think without words. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Hey, Kelly Alarcon, uh, had, well, I've known Kelly since, boy, since she was born. She has a recording, so let's listen to Kelly. This is Kelly Alarcon from Oceanside, California. Um, on a sidebar, Michelle may know who I am. Um, so this is in response to the questions for her next podcast. Um, my first, um, like, memory is, um, that I can remember is going to see Todd play, uh, or in concert when I was about four and a half, and just being able to get up and dance and, and everything, and that was the greatest time of my life. Um, the second question is my first musical memory is obviously seeing Todd, um, live in concert. Um, start the show, this is Kelly Alarcon. You may recognize the last name because you obviously know my dad. Um, I'm from Oceanside, California. Um, my question is to you, do you still talk to Shandy Cinnamon? Um, so yeah, so I'm Kelly Alicorn. Well, Kelly
Kelly, I haven't spoken to Shandy in millions of years. Probably seven years, I think, six or seven years. So thank you for that question because I immediately called her. I didn't even know if it would be her number, but the answering machine hits her voice. So I left a message, and I haven't heard back yet. And that was yesterday. So uh, thank you. Thanks for, I hope, hopefully, we'll you know, get together. She's in Eugene, Oregon now. And my brother Jonathan and best friend, sister-in-law, Claudia, live there. So um, I'm going to try to look her up next time I go down there. Normally, uh, John and Claudia come up to Portland to Rebop's house, and we hang out there, but I love going to Eugene and seeing them and their dog. <laughs> okay, uh, Gail Glennie Burke says, oh, she, she re I forgot to read like all these great names that you guys had for podcast names. So, uh, oh, I'll read, I'll read Gail's last, because I, I almost chose it. But uh, Kelly's daughter, Kelly Ellerkin's daughter, uh, thought I should call the podcast Random Thoughts. And Lisa Asta said that she liked my first episode title, Hello, It's Me, Shell. <laughs> um, Sharon Barber said, had a couple of them, Michelle Tells Stories, not necessarily about Todd. Michelle's Truth, Michelle's Ohana, Ohana means family. And she said, how about Ohana Banana, like a Brit? <laughs> Lisa Percy Valley said, how about Michelle's memorabilia? And Gail Glennie Burke, I almost did it, Gail. The world's most dangerous podcast, patterned after the world's most dangerous backup singers. That was, uh, she harkened back to the time when uh, Todd's backup singers, uh, we all got to be sort of like the pips. It was just us. I think we did four episodes of uh, David Letterman without Todd, just as the world's most dangerous backup singers for the world's most dangerous band. It was so much fun. Uh, let's see. Ira Sizik says, Greetings, Michelle, from St. Louis. Congratulations launching your new podcast. Oh, she has a couple of them. Meanderings by Michelle. And I love this one. Out of the Gray Zone. <laughs> oh, that is a good one. <laughs> My maiden name is Gray. Uh, she says, after listening uh, to the first one, I know your podcast will be a great success, not only because the first one was personally touching, interesting, funny, and comforting, aw, but because you, Superman's daughter, have the Midas touch. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Iris. Since we're talking about that, uh, I'm doing this to avoid writing a book. I've decided to name the podcast after the, the book title, which was the very first episode you heard, uh, the very first story, the story that really started my understanding of who I was. So, title of the podcast, Superman's Daughter, because I do and always feel like I am Superman's Daughter. <laughs> All right, let's get back to some other stuff. Hey, Lisa also had a story. Uh, she says her first memory was hanging out with her grandfather on Saturdays because her dad worked on Saturday. And her grandfather would take her out with him. He went to all these little stores to go buy cigarettes, and she would always get a book or a toy. And he died when she was five, but she still remembers that. 
Her first musical memory is listening to a classical orchestra music that her father would play and conducting it in her mind with some faux baton when she was about three or so. Very cool. I can see you doing that, Lisa. And the first album I remember buying was... <laughs> I'm sorry. I read ahead, Lisa. Sorry. And she actually, in the, in the text, says, do laugh. Okay, I did. I'm still going to. Her first album she bought was The Flying Nun. Yes, from the TV show. <laughs> oh, God, the second one's worse. <laughs> the second one. Uh, sorry, I know Lisa really well. She's Aunt Lisa to all of our boys. Um, they spent so much time at her house. She was. She kept Todd and I sane when we couldn't handle them. Lisa, can you take them for the weekend? <laughs> anyway, oh, her second one. Are you sure you want to admit this, Lisa? It was The Partridge Family. She was a huge fan. And to add to her preteen lameness, her first concert, she said that I didn't. To add to my preteen lameness, my first concert was Bobby Sherman. <laughs> then she says, in a few years, I was into the Grateful Dead by the time I was 14 and found Todd at 15. Have not advanced musically since. That's, that's okay. We think you can stop there. And then Gail Glennie Burke said, uh, I'm an instant fan of your podcast. Love the idea of asking questions. Her first concert, ooh, 1971 Alice Cooper, the Love It to Death tour. I was grounded. Oh, you were grounded at the time, but she snuck in anyway. And she said that's probably the first time she ever, ever lied. She told a vague story about babysitting. The cool thing is she sent a picture of her ticket she kept that ticket. That's so cool. And it was three bucks. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. Okay. Uh, oh, Tina and Michael from Eugene, Oregon. Now, I've known Tina for a long time, too. Uh, I, well, I've known a lot of you for a long time. Uh, Tina and Michael wanted to say um, they were one of the last customers at Sweet Life before Sweet Life Bakery closed for quarantine. Now, Sweet Life uh, is one of the best bakeries in America. It's, uh, it's been listed in many, many, you know, Bon Appetit and Food and Wine magazine and all that stuff. Uh, and Claudia is one of the main managers there, my sister-in-law. So that's so cool that you get to go in and see Claudia. And it's freaking amazing. Um, she said Claudia happened to be there working. We introduced ourselves and stocked up on Chocolate Incredibles. And they said they hope to be the first customers when they open again in May. And they are going to open. They got their PPP loan. Okay, here's, here's my, uh, she says, here are my answers to the questions. First memory, the day that they came to lay candy-striped carpet in my bedroom. I was four. And finding a crawfish on the front porch during a possible flood. Or her older brothers, which were about three or four. You mean your older brothers put the crawfish out there, or you found your brothers on the porch? Okay. First musical memory. Listening to my brother Stevie play the banjo and singing Kingston Trio. Cool. First records. Meet the Beatles was the first I bought with my own money. Spirit was the first one that I stole from an older brother. And Something Anything was my first Todd album. Her first concert. Ooh, good one. Grand Funk Railroad. 
Blood Rock opened and the drummer was my brother's friend from high school. Song or songs? She said, it's too hard to answer. Too many Todd to mention. The Moonlight Sonata, The Impossible Dream. This takes more thought, but I can tell one of the proudest moments of my life. Oh, this is good. I read ahead. Uh, one of the proudest moments of my life was when our 27-year-old son at the time bought a hi-fi record cabinet at Goodwill and came and asked for all our Todd albums. At first, I said, of course not. But then I kind of choked up. I said, yes, 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 you can have them. Ah, that's a good story, Tina. <laughs> and Linda Fisher writes, my dad was a musician. There was always music in the house. If he couldn't play music, he didn't work. She had friends whose fathers were musicians and their dads worked other jobs like accountants, car sales. My dad wouldn't, so we were poor, needless to say. I remember our cars getting repoed all the time. Wow. He was a pianist for all the strippers in Washington, D.C. on 14th Street. <laughs> His major job was writing and arranging music for Natasha, the Hungarian ballerina. Really, stripper. He also played piano with Miles Davis in the 60s. Whoa! And was Don Rickles' pianist. <laughs> so there was always music. He taught me piano until I wouldn't listen to him. So he got me a teacher and I play flute. Very cool. Um, Linda's first memories are when she was two. She lived on the bottom floor of an apartment in Maryland, a few miles from Washington, D.C. Her dad worked nights, so he was home with or so he was home with me and my sister all day. One day we decided to paint our room that we shared, she and her sister. And he took the screens off the windows. And Linda says, let me remind you, because he was a musician and worked nights, my mom and dad never slept until after 2 a.m. every night. My sister and I would get into so much trouble because my parents slept until 10 or 11. And they put a lock on the outside of our bedroom door. You know what's coming next? Because he took those screens off? <laughs> my sister dressed me in crinolines, which are big slips, and sweaters. She opened the window and we went out. My mom got a phone call at 6.30 in the morning from the neighbor across the way saying my sister and I were on the front stoop. We got into a lot of trouble, but to be fair, it was dad's fault. Her first record, Meet the Beatles. The Beatles changed her music life. Her dad wrote arrangements for her on the flute and her sister. Ah, yeah, I mixed hers up with, uh, no, I think, yeah, I mixed hers up with Ray's. So your concerts with the Temptations of Four Tops, I'll figure it out. See, if I'd done this at night and had a glass of wine, I would not mix anything up. Except a cocktail. <laughs> Linda said she did see the Naz in Philadelphia, so she's been a Todd fan for a long, long time. Yeah, this is Linda. And uh, that's who says all of you people, all the Todd fans and friends are really important. Now, I don't know who could top this first concert. Karen Giocondi. Her first concert, she was in the eighth grade. Okay, what might possibly be better than the Beatles? Maybe nothing, but if there were one that you might think could be better than the Beatles, she saw Elvis. Woo! <laughs> oh, that reminds me of a quick story. Michael, we were in the tubes on our tour bus. Michael Cotton bought this um, book about Elvis. It was just his, I don't know if it was a biography or, or autobiography. No, it was a biography. Um, and he was reading it. And one of the really interesting things 
was on Elvis's birth certificate. It, his first name is spelled E-V-I-S, no L. And that's because his mom had such an accent when they said, what's his name? She said, his name is Elvis. Elvis. So, I don't know, I just like that trivia. I don't know why I remember that trivia. <laughs> I don't remember some of the important things in my life. <laughs> okay. Um, this is... Oh, here's a question. It's from... Oh, hi, Michelle. Thank you so much for putting together this podcast. It's great to hear your voice and your energy is this format, in this format. My question is about the time in the tubes. Crazy days to be sure. One of the most bizarre things I ever saw in concert, if I'm remembering correctly, as I was in an altered state, <laughs> at the tubes concert, was during Mondo Bondage. The hunting down of E.T. and spanking him over the knee with a cat of nine tails. Does my memory jive? Uh, he says, be well and thanks again for sharing your time with all of us. Peace and love, Kevin Mock, Boston. Well, Kevin, you are in such an altered state that you got it right. <laughs> but what's funny is I had forgotten that until you told me that. And it just brought it all back. Um, yeah, I was on Mondo Bondage. I'm pretty busy wrapping my arms and legs all over Fee in a torturous Mondo Bondage-like duet. It was a pas de trois, <laughs> a, a trio, me and Cheryl and Fee. So what was happening around the stage was, yeah, chaos. And yes, that was the crew would dress up and do parts too. So, yeah, they... Cotton E.T. and spanked him. You're right. <laughs> All right, we're down to no more questions. Is that right? Okay, that means I gotta visit Veronica Moreno's story. Okay, a little drink of iced tea. Honesty, honesty, honesty. Veronica Moreno says, When I heard about your mentor today, the great Ben Vereen, I was floored. I've admired his talent since I was a young girl, and my mother took me to see the Broadway show Pippin. Whoa, I am so envious. That show is amazing. Um, I had that record, too. Uh, she says, I think we saw it twice. What a magical production that was. I think it was my favorite of all time. Oh, I can see that. Uh, Michelle, my question is, how did he come to be your inspiration? How much did you work with him, and in what capacity, and do you still keep in touch with him? Okay, let's see. I'll tell my Ben story. I gotta tell a pre-story sort of to lead up to it. So anytime our family took a long drive, my parents would sing in the car. You know, Carousel, Oklahoma, King and I, South Pacific. Mom sounded like Shirley Jones and dad sounded like Howard Keel. You know, that typical some enchanted evening. Well, they both sounded really good. So they uh since junior high, I have always had a dream to sing and dance on Broadway, and I always wondered if I was good enough. At 20, I auditioned for a very big show in Seattle called the Music Hall Follies. Um, I wasn't supposed to actually audition. My boyfriend at the time was going up to audition, so I drove with him, but I didn't meet the height requirements. It said 5'5 five, five and over. So I just stayed in the lobby while he was auditioning, and some guy 
came into the lobby and said, hey, can I help you? And I said, oh, my boyfriend is auditioning. And, and um, he said, well, you look like a dancer. Why aren't you auditioning? I said, I am a dancer, and I, but I don't meet the height requirements. I'm 5'2". He said, well, are you good? I said, I'm really good. And so he said, come back tomorrow and audition. It's like, oh, shit, cool. So I auditioned and got in the show. And one of the reasons I got into the show was not just because I was good, but because there was another girl who auditioned who was five foot two. And so we both got into the show and we were the bookends. It went from short and in the middle was the star of the show and all those tall, beautiful showgirls. <laughs> Yeah, it was an amazing show. It had elevators in the stage, like a car would come up, an ice rink would come out, uh, chandeliers would go up and down. I even, in one number, um, I got to like race around the outside of the theater, go up to the third balcony, throw a Spanish web rope, and then upside down, slide down it into the audience, and then, then run up onto the stage. It was just, it was the time of my life. It felt just like a chorus line. I lived across the street, and I would go to work and walk all the way down the stairs, past the showgirls' room, the stars' dressing room, uh, and three girls, if you were a dancer, three girls at a time had their own dressing rooms. You know, just, you'd go to wardrobe to get fitted all the time and fix your wig or fix your, your big feathers, and it was, it was like the movies. It was so great. All right, so that show got bought by uh, a big John Esquagas nugget in Reno. So we packed up the show and opened in Reno. Now, Ben Vereen was also playing in Reno at Harrah's, and he came to our show afterwards and backstage. So he was telling everybody how, how much he enjoyed it, um, but he sought me out to compliment me on my performance and the ability to draw the crowd in because I was having such a good time. He said, that's what it's all about. He said, so many people just perform thinking people are just watching them. But um, that what he saw in me was that I thought about, I was having such a good time, so they were too. He asked if I had plans to go further. I told him I was hoping to get to New York someday and hoped that I might be good enough to get into a Broadway show. He said, you're good enough now. You should go. He also offered to coach me and invited me to uh, the Harris house, which is where the headliners stay when they're performing on the main stage. We worked a bit on dance moves during the day, and he coached me on what I was doing wrong with my voice. He, he was right. I was yelling into the mic because it's a big room, and you don't need to yell. Let, let the sound guy do their job. So over lunch and dinners, he coached me on what to do when I got to New York, who to go see, where to take dance classes, but he said he would not open doors for me, that I had to do that myself. We had an on and off again relationship for a few years. I always lied to people and told them we weren't sexual, but we were. I had my first and only threesome, which I did not like. Um, he didn't ask me, he just brought a girl into bed, and I'm like, oh. I think I was a little too young for that. Uh, I just didn't like that I wasn't in control of the situation, and it didn't seem intimate. Oh, shit. I think I have only told Cheryl from the tubes that story. Yeah, maybe maybe Claudia. Oh, okay, on another note, 
Cheryl and I were each other's competition in college. We had the same, our dance teacher, Bob Heath, was amazing. He really taught us showbiz, and I'll talk about him again uh, on another podcast. But we, Cheryl and I, vied for the same dance parts, the same dance partners, the same boyfriends. We both moved to L.A. with our dance troupe. Uh, it was just like a little eight-member eight troupe, and we were trying to make it into uh, showrooms and stuff as a group. So... We didn't quite make, the dance troupe didn't quite make it all together, so I was planning on moving to New York City, and Cheryl stayed in L.A. and got into um, movies, dancing for Kenny Ortega. Now, look him up, like Xanadu and a couple other things. Very cool. So it really, really surprised me when Cheryl called me in New York, my nemesis, to tell me that Kenny Ortega was going to direct a show about Marilyn Monroe and that I should audition. And she made that connection for me. I auditioned for that show for three months, sometimes three days a week. Audition, audition, audition. And in the end, I was supposed to get the understudy. Then something happened. Kenny Ortega asked me about a rumor that I was in a band, you know, working the clubs on Long Island. I said, yeah, I was. He said, I think there's a better place for you. I was like, no, 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 no. I worked my whole life to get here. I'll quit the band. I'll quit the band. He told me about an opening position with a rock band called The Tubes. Again, I was like, no, 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 my whole life, this is it, this is this, this is it for me. He said, hold on, just think about it, and then get back to him. So I called Ben Vereen. Ben came over, and we discussed the pros and cons in the end. One thing he said stood out. He said, if a director sees something in you, listen. He sees what you can't. He sees something in you you don't know. Go for it. But there was one more hurdle. The job couldn't even be considered by the tubes unless Cheryl Hangland said it was okay. Now remember, she helped me get that audition with Kenny, but this is something else. I'm, I would be coming into her 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 realm, her band. She was there first. It was up to Cheryl. And to this day, it's one of the most magnanimous gestures I've witnessed. In 1982, Cheryl Hangland said, yes, she should be in the band. So I flew to L.A. to the studio where we're recording Completion Backwards Principle. She introduced me to Fee and the Boys. Earth, Wind & Fire was there. I met Steve Lukather. David Foster was producing. And the record was done. The next thing I knew, we were on a huge European tour. And, and, I, and I would gather some of the wildest stories of my life. Okay, go ahead. Ask another question. See what rabbit hole I'll venture down next. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. And a decade later, Ben, was doing a, ben Vereen was doing a one-man show at a fancy hotel. And Todd and I were staying there. Um, I don't remember if it's an acapella tour or nearly human. But I called his room. Remember in those days you could just call the front desk and say, you know, hook me up with Ben Vereen's room, and they would. Um, I called his room, and I tried a few times to remind him who I was, but he didn't remember me. I thanked him for helping guide my career, but I 
cut the call a little short when he got funny. He was like, he doesn't remember. He doesn't remember me. But he starts asking me, well, what do you look like? How much do you weigh? What are your measurements? Are you still hot? Years later, <laughs> Tubes producer David Foster literally ran over Ben Vereen on an L.A. highway. And they both survived. <laughs> oh, hey, um, I'm going to read something. Uh, Sharon Barber answered some questions, but she wrote it so well. So I'm going to read it like a great story. I think you did a really cool job, Sharon. All right, all these words are hers. Here's one song that has impacted me for decades, even more so recently. Surprise! It's a Todd song. I adore Want of a Nail. It's a beautiful song, powerful message, a reminder that the smallest thing can be foundational for something magnificent. Now, Todd Stock West, Camp Navarro. No idea what to expect. Questionnaires are sent ahead of time. For question about the fan band. What Todd song would you like to see the fan band perform? I answer, one of a nail. Later, it asks about musical skills. Do we play an instrument or sing? Sure, I can sing. Little did I know. Here's a spreadsheet with songs and the assignments for the three nights of fan band. Back up on Beatles. Back up on Fascist Christ. <gasps> what? Lead on what of a nail? Say what? I run through it once. Realize I have the first sound, and that's not no small note. Plus, there's a huge note towards the end. Deep breath. Not every song will make it to the stage, it says, so if I tank in rehearsals, it just won't be part of the show. Maybe I'm secretly hoping that. <laughs> Thank God for your daily vocal warm-ups and advice, Michelle. Day three. We rehearse. It works. It's on the list top of the order. Not too much pressure. <laughs> Side note, in rehearsal, one of the musicians noticed we skipped a bridge in the lyrics. We said we'd do it as rehearse, no bridge. We're waiting to take the stage and now I fully comprehend that I'm about to sing lead on a cherished song by my musical hero in front of my musical hero. Deep breath. On stage, I fixate at the TV screen with lyrics. You only think you know the song by heart. The first note comes out strong. The band comes in. It's like jumping off a cliff. And the band comes in to break my fall. An incredible feeling. Then I see that the lyrics on the screen are corrected. The bridge is back, but no one in the band knows it. I need that screen. So I make the decision to add back the bridge and hope the band follows. One brief moment of confusion and they recover. Second leap off a cliff. <sighs> Deep breath. Finally, we reach the big, big note. Michelle's advice is to envision and feel the note coming out of the top of your head. So I push the note up through the top of my head and beyond, through the unicorn headband that's my costume, and it works! Third cliff! Now I can breathe and enjoy the rest of the song. I can't do the final patter like Todd can, but I'm feeling amazing. <laughs> Every minute of Todd Stock West was as bright and beautiful jewel in my life. But the time I spent singing that song 
will always be the brightest. And to think Todd saw it in person, <gasps> deep breath. Ah, that choked me up. <laughs> that was really cool, Sharon. I like your writing. Hey, that reminds me, if you guys want me to read your story like that, if you feel like you want to, you can just write a little paragraph or you can write a story like I do. I think it's fun to hear our stories. Or you can record it if you can get it to three minutes. <laughs> all right. Um, now I'm going to answer. Now I get to answer all those questions that I asked you. My first memory, not very poignant. Uh, I was 18 months old, and we had a big hedge going down the side of our our house, our property, and it had kind of a hole in it, like a like an entrance to a cave. And the hedge was pretty deep. My my brother and I can't remember if it was our dog or not, but his name was Toro, black um, cocker spaniel. So Toro went through that hole, and I followed him. And I remember my mom, I guess there was a busy street really nearby, so I remember my mom just racing up there and grabbing me and giving me my very first spanking. <laughs> that was it. I think I was... Oh, yeah, that was 18 months. Yeah. And then my first musical memory when I was three. Our house stereo. A long, five-foot, 1950s, arty, blonde wood with a, a huge circle speaker. And it had a beautiful beige, bumpy fabric over the big round speaker. My parents... I would play Marian Anderson, Rodgers and Hammerstein musicals, Paul Robeson, Andy Williams, Nat King Cole, but my first soul-inspiring music was Belafonte. I remember the album cover. They would let me hold it when I listened. And I'd press my ear up against that big brown beige fabric. Handsome Belafonte wearing a peach-colored shirt against a light green background. He was sitting with his arm draped over his knee, looking pensive. Oh, I was just captured by his ballads and spirituals. Songs like Water Boy, Troubles, Scarlet Ribbons. But the song I most asked to hear over and over was called Take My Mother Home. It wasn't just his voice. I noticed the soundtrack the soaring background vocals, and the torturous sound effects of the nails being pounded into the cross. Ugh. Now, my parents weren't religious, even though they sent us to Presbyterian school each Sunday. Oh, Presbyterian Sunday school, I meant. But their diverse musical collection was freaking inspiring. Yeah, the, if you get a chance to... Maybe Joey can play that. Ugh. It's, it's wild. Okay, our living room was really big. I would dance ballet to Grieg like crazy. Started at three. Any Russian dance music would set me to choreograph big moves in the big living room. Hall of the Mountain King, the Nutcracker Suite. Oh, 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 like Leonard Bernstein's Philharmonica Orchestra version of Hall of the Mountain King. I wanted to marry Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> I guess I kind of did. <laughs> okay, to this day, the dancing part, 
I sort of recreate it on every Game of Thrones episode. Well, I did, you know, when Game of Thrones was playing. I would push back all the furniture in our bedroom and make room for a very simple ballet. I would improvise weekly dancing to the theme of Game of Thrones. I dare you to try it. Come on. Okay, start with just moving or walking, kind of like a royal person might. Just keep walking around. Hold your head very high. Stretch out your neck, shoulders down and shoulders back. Your arms are at your side with a slight bend at the elbow. Just start walking around to music like that. Then start to move your arms slowly as you walk. See, you know, just see where the music takes you physically. Give in to whatever you feel like doing. But start out, you know, just walking regally. And, you know, I think it'll work. Try it, try it. I'm going to ask my producer, Joy Ray, if it's okay for us to add the theme to the end of this podcast. Because I really want you to try it. Even if you're in your kitchen. And you just pause between each of your steps if you're just walking. I'll try to video some little ditty next week and show you how easy it is. Hey, remember when all of you were dancing at Toddstock? I was shocked how many of you were amazing. You learned and did all the choreography to Secret Society. All of you. It was <laughs> Anyway, uh, where was I? Oh, my first musical memories, which also influenced the rest of my life. I know, listening to classical dance and Belafonte. I knew, I knew, I knew. I wanted to grow up to be a handsome black male singer-dancer. I got a couple of those, right? <laughs> hey, Mother's Day is coming up. I love thinking about my mom. She's not on this horizon anymore, but I hear her often. I hear her each time I talk to a stranger while I'm in line at a grocery store. I hear her voice each time I pause before getting angry with someone. I feel her. I inherited my mom's heart. I am slightly taller, but built like her. She was five foot one and 110 pounds. I think genetics that I am built like her and not my six foot, 210 pound cop father. Life would be different. <laughs> anyway, I've, I have some fun stories I'd like to share about my mom, and I'm hoping you guys do too. And it doesn't have to be a certain certain thing you say, but I'll, I'll give you something that might stir your brain up. Say anything about your mom. What do you like best about her? Or what have you learned from your mom? Were there things she did to make life fun or meaningful? What story would you like to tell about your mom? Wild, wacky, odd? Um, is there something amazing about her that you want to emulate? You know, if you focus on it, you know. I wonder what stories my sons would tell about me. I think I know a couple of them. <laughs> hey, Rex. <laughs> uh, hey, another thing I'm going to try to do is uh, find something that Murph... A lot of you remember Murph. She did. Uh, she ran the Utopia Times and created that after Ruth did. She's not here anymore. But just like my mom and and maybe anybody that you've lost, I know we've we've lost some people recently. Um, my mom taught me, and 
I think Murph felt this kind of the same way, is that when someone leaves this place, you find something that you liked about them and you try to incorporate it in your own life or personality or heart or thought. And um, I think that's important. It kind of keeps them staying here. And before Murph died of the flu, she made me a little, uh, a little gift, this little bottle with lots and lots of sayings inside. You can't quite see all of them. They're all rolled up with silver glitter on the edges, and she just said, pick one a day. I only picked one, and it was, ah, it was beautiful. But I gotta find that and, and read a Murphism uh, each show. That'll be fun. Okay, if you'd like to vocally tell your story or ask a question, we can play on the podcast. Call 808-431-4881 when you have three minutes, or you can send stories or questions, and I'll read them to michellerundgren at gmail.com. <laughs> oh, okay. I Since we're going to do stories about mom, I'll get you started. I'm going to end with a quick story about my mom. Um, maybe in the next week or two, be looking for Intoxicats to be doing something fun. And I'll ask Todd about what he's working on. I know, I know my boyfriend's working on something. I'll figure out uh, how to tell you when it is. Okay. In my first podcast, I told the story about my dad's actions shaping my very being. When I saw him in action, I knew who I was. I said, I am Superman's daughter. Well, my brothers Gino and Jonathan and I are very much molded by Patricia Louise Helgeson Gray. That's my maiden name, Gray. She was also a force. I remember being in the back seat of our light blue Plymouth. I can't remember what kind of Plymouth it was. Hmm, maybe Gina remembers. Anyway, I remember being in that back seat when she let out a typical 1960s mom cry, Oh no! Slammed on the brakes, and as she exited the car, she turned around and yelled, Stay in the car, kids! A few yards ahead of us was a huge circle of high school kids and a gnarly fight going on in the middle. More than two people fighting each other. Our five foot one, 110 pound mama raced right into the middle, grabbed two of the biggest guys and started to tell them, go home. I know your parents. I'll go to each of your homes to tell, tell that what you've done here, or I can call my husband, Officer Gray, to come and arrest many of you. Now go, get, move along. Yep, move along. No more fights today. I'll turn you in. Go home. Get. Get. <laughs> That's what she sounded like. They all turned like bad little puppies and been caught chewing dad's best shoes. And when they were all gone, she got in the car, didn't say a word, drove home and made well-done hamburger patties with tiny onions and green peppers inside. I really hate green peppers. <laughs> All right, that's it for our podcast today. Mahalo to my producer, Joey Ray. Mahalo to family for letting me talk about us. My boyfriend for promising not to listen. And you. I can't wait to actually do this with you in person. Aloha, Nui Aloha. My name is Joey. I am the producer for this podcast. Everything is going to be in the show notes. You can check out the links.
Um, check out how to ask questions. The email address, michellerungren at gmail.com. The number to call for voicemails, 808-431-4881. Also, our Instagram handle, at Podcast. our Facebook fan page. All of the good links you need. Also, you can buy a T-shirt and help support Michelle Rundgren Podcast. Be the first one on your block to have the T-shirt. Company here on Kauai is making shirts for a lot of the businesses and helping support different businesses and getting those shirts out there to you. Michelle will get a little bit of kickback for each one of those shirts. Give KauaiHope.com or the link directly to the Michelle Rundgren podcast shirt is in the links. Thank you very much for joining us. My name is Joey. You can check out my podcast. Kauai Today is out there. Subscribe. Subscribe to Michelle's. We'll be back with another podcast very soon. Aloha.
I think 